Hey, y'all, it's Orlando. We just want to let you know that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit in the world. Welcome to a special episode of Authentically Detroit Broadcasting Live from the beautiful Mackinac Island here at the Regional Chambers Policy Conference. This episode is brought to you by Fora Foundation and we are a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey and my special guest co-host today is Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Stephen Henderson. Stephen is the founder and executive editor of BridgeDetroit.com, host of Detroit Today on WDET and anchor of American Black Journal on Detroit Public television. Stephen, what is it that you don't do? <laughs> it's nice to have you guys hosting with us, Stephen. I just have lots of curiosity, that's all. <laughs> that leads you to lots of work. Thanks for coming on again, Stephen. It's been a while since we've had I you know, on. I haven't, I haven't had the privilege of sitting in this seat for a long time. I love the work you guys do at Authentically Detroit, though, and I'm always like, ah, I wish I was part of that conversation. Well, so. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. It's a huge compliment when Stephen <laughs> likes your stuff. Uh, Donna's not feeling the best, so we are sending her good vibes and prayers. So we thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build platforms for authentic voices for real people in Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. Joining us is Darnell Adams. Darnell is the director of Detroit Community Initiatives at the Gilbert Family Foundation. He also served as the director of inventory at the Detroit Land Bank Authority and worked on the financing side with Invest Detroit. And he's also a graduate of Warren Connor Development Coalition University. Darnell Adams, <laughs> welcome to. I can't believe I'm saying this to you for the first time. I know. Welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank you. It so is a pleasure. Why haven't you come on? What, uh, what have you been doing with your life? I didn't get the invite. No, <laughs> don't say that. No, I don't. No, uh, I just been busy. Yeah, yeah, been real busy. So you are shepherding a huge purse uh, with the Gilbert Family Foundation. What is it? Uh, upwards of what? Uh, Three hundred and fifty million dollars that you are responsible for dispersing into uh, communities and neighborhoods in the city of Detroit. Talk about the weight of that responsibility and how you approach it as a born and raised Detroiter, an Eastsider. Mm. Okay. The weight? Yeah. I, so I remember my first dinner that I had with the team and they said to me, uh, it was actually uh, James Vegan. He said, how does it feel? Another to be Warren Connor graduate. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Maggie just, you know, puts us all, <laughs> puts, know. Maggie, spits out all the. the I don't the know about we, Maggie DeSanders. Man. All good things lead back to Maggie. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember at, at that dinner, he said, how does it feel to be the $500 million guy? And because, you know, there's a joint, yeah. joint uh, investment between Rocket Community Fund and the Gilbert Family Foundation. But uh, it didn't even I didn't even think about it like that. You know, for me, it was more like we have some money to do some real disruption across Detroit. And um, the weight has gradually continued to like sort of pile on because I'm getting so much, um, so many requests for meetings and like ideas and um, it's just a lot, but it's good heavy work, right? I think oftentimes people feel exhausted from their, their jobs and their day to days, but when I'm tired, it's, it's okay because this is exactly where I wanted to be. Like I set out a, a path 
that got me to be where I am today. And it wasn't an easy path. It, it required a lot of uh, learning and research and navigating and understanding how different sectors and systems across uh, the, the Detroit ecosystem work. And now I'm on this side of the table to start helping uh, provide the resources that are actually necessary to get the work started. Continue so you, to get the work. you used a really interesting word there. $500 million to disrupt across Detroit. I, I want you to take that word and, and, and open it up for us. What, what, what do you mean? So when you think about the systems that are currently in play from, you know, capital, real estate, homeownership, uh, crime, anything, right? Anything that is like really churning the wheels of cities, uh, they have not been, they've not always worked to uh, uplift communities. And so, you know, from my work at Warren Connor. I'm going to take this back real quick mm-hmm. from my work <laughs> as a community organizer, like being on the ground and walking the streets with residents, looking at the problems, figuring out like what is a solution here and, and not having one because there was no one to like come save us to, you know, or no one to come um, provide the resources for us to fix these problems. Mm-hmm. It was frustrating. It, it continues to be frustrating because it's, you know, while there is significant investment happening across the city, there are still a lot of neighborhoods that are left being left behind yeah. or are waiting to have that, that investment realized. So, um, you know, there I saw the, the problem and I saw other issues around like how philanthropy approaches nonprofits and, you know, help them to do their, you know, focus on their mission. Um, and so, again, like I set out to be here, but as I left Warren Connor, I went to the land bank and I just sort of watched how things were being done across the city and decided, like, we need to change the policy here. We shouldn't just be uh, making these very significant decisions in communities without community input. Mm. Great example, like Gladstone Block Club. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I remember driving through the community. All these homes were, uh, were uh, uh, set up to be demolished. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, we had this, uh, this organization earlier in the year come to us and ask if they could you know, take some houses and showcase them. It went okay. Let's talk to the Gladstone Block Club. Let's see if they will take these 14 houses in this neighborhood. We'll give them the, the houses. We'll let them uh, you know, create an open house for their community, their families. And do you know, like, all those homes that were slated for demolition, out of the 17 houses, 14 were sold to families. Wow. 14. It, there is real power in community. There's real power in people if you give them the opportunity. And so what I've tried to do is provide access to change how organizations, whether it's government, whether it's um, private capital mm-hmm. or philanthropy, it's just we have to create access points so people can help really drive the change that's necessary across the city. And so that's the disruption piece, actually listening to Detroiters yeah, and what they have yeah, to say absolutely. and honoring their expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, journey, your journey is an interesting one, and I sort of want you to walk us through through this journey, starting at a community development not-for-profit, working for a quasi-governmental agency. I always say this, Steve, and I don't think anybody knows the city like in terms of just pure landmass, 139 square miles better than Darnell Adams because he <laughs> was the director of inventory for yes. the land bank, responsible for 
dispersing what upwards of ninety thousand parcels at the time, and the inventory was a little more than that. It was the, the the peak for me was ninety nine thousand nine hundred and thirty eight. Okay, wow. <laughs> thank you My for goodness. fact checking me. Uh, and then you went over to the community development uh, financial services side with Invest Detroit, mm-hmm. and now now you're in philanthropy. Talk about this journey. You say you charted it out. Was all of this intentional? Uh, in my mind, I no. I think it was like subconsciously, my mind was driving me in this direction. So when I got to the land bank, you know, Detroit was, you know, sort of like coming out of a recession, or I call it a depression. We lost a lot of generational wealth. We lost a lot of assets. Had a lot of vacancies uh, across the city, and you know, but we were putting things back together. You know, we were trying to figure out how to create the tools to punch energy back into uh, the heart of Detroit for the real estate market. And uh, I, Deccan T. Men's Cole was my director at the time. And she mm-hmm. said to me, I need a strategy to figure out how we're going to put these houses back together or like put them back to the market. And so before I was able to have a better grip on the demolition inventory, because, you know, I really wanted to make sure that we weren't tearing down property that should not have been torn down. Uh, I built us, I built an actual uh, scope that helped us identify what's salvageable versus what isn't salvageable. But I also developed a market strategy for the entire land bank that I think is still in practice until they run out of inventory, which, you know, will happen someday. Yeah. Um, and so there I felt like by the time 2018 rolled around, enough energy had been put at the land bank where they were nimble enough to, to provide inventory to different programs uh, to communities that were asking for it to be uh, put up for sale that I could now go on. And I was watching the market values around the city begin to shift. And I mm-hmm. said, well, what's a community without a place to, to, to grow a business, start a business, mm-hmm. play, live, you know, mm-hmm. like just be be home. You know, you mm-hmm. don't have to drive across eight miles because, you know, Orlando knows better than anybody. <laughs> I do not like <laughs> to go across eight miles. I don't like my money to leave Detroit. Ever. <laughs> I like my money to be right inside of Detroit because it's important that that circulation occurs uh, at home and and not out there. So um, feeling confident, I left to go over to Invest Detroit where they were doing, you know, working on the SNF, the Strategic Neighborhood Fund, uh, the private partner um, partnership with the city. And um, I was working on commercial corridor development and working with BIPOC developers giving them the technical assistance that they needed in order to thrive and succeed. You know, Six Mile and McNichols, like that was, that's my, that was my playground. Like all those developments happening there, like I, I, I feel privileged to have touched every single one of them and also potentially provide generational wealth to those developers who are gonna see those assets come online for those communities, creating jobs, like all those- Black things. developers. Black developers, mm-hmm. yes, very specific. Uh, yeah, yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, and. You know, it was just, it, it was amazing to just sort of watch the transformation of neighborhoods. Uh, but the one thing that, the one thing that didn't exist necessarily was um, community input was in the planning studies, but it wasn't in the developments. Mm. And so Invest Detroit, um, which is just one of the most incredible companies um, in the city, they were a partner of the city acquiring assets and then are like doing a request for proposal them to, out. Yeah, yeah bidding them out to um, anybody like, yeah. but we were intentional about yeah, 
We black, wanted black, yeah. We yeah. wanted black developers. And, you know, it was great, but then there was this component where um, there was no updates to the community about what's happening with these projects. So we started to charge the um, developers with engaging with the community, like letting them know what's coming, asking them what, what makes sense, uh, asking them if this is a right fit for them. You know, and I think it was... Um, I get a li- I got a little bit be- uh, before the curve because I got to invest Detroit when this- some of this was already done, but uh, as we continued to acquire inventory and-, and bid it out, I was very intentional about how community was engaged. So the the quick example I'll give is uh, a building on the on the east side, uh, developer Eddie Carrington, which oh the East Warren Corridor, yeah, yeah. East Warren Corridor. Mm-hmm. So we acquired a building, RFP'd it. But instead of just selecting a developer, we created an entire advisory committee that was comprised of East English Village Neighborhood Association, Morningside Neighborhood Association, Cornerstone Neighborhood Association, East Warren DEFCO, and then we had a municipal side. I didn't really care about the municipal side. Like, I mean, I did, but I didn't. And then you had Investor Detroit sort of sitting in the middle. And what we wanted was for the, the advisory side to help inform what will it take to say yes to a developer. What do you want? What do you need? And so I developed a, a really brief criteria or a curriculum where I took the entire advisory committee, showed them what a performance was, what it takes to make a project work, what, you know, looking at market studies that were produced How for that How to get quarter. a deal done. Huh? How to get a deal done. How yeah. to get a deal done. And so they were, they were armed and they interviewed every single developer. Wow. And they criticized all these developers. <laughs> they did. I mean, it was like, when I tell you, the people, it was, it was scary. And, and it was a disruption to the flow of how capital goes into communities and how institutions make decisions. Dave B. at Invest Detroit and Kerry, mm-hmm. um, Lawan Monroe, they trusted me to, to, to shepherd this initiative because it was a scary territory for any institution to enter. You're giving power to the community to make decisions about investments. Anyway, so <laughs> it, was, it was a very powerful process that the city then adopted themselves, and they continued to implement. And so we basically showed them the process, and they took it. All right. We're in a home repair crisis here in mm. the city of Detroit. Uh, U of M Poverty Solutions have given us the numbers. Uh, it, it, is, it is quite clear that folks are struggling to keep up their homes and folks are living in derelict properties. So not too long ago, the Gilbert Family Foundation announced um, a home repair fund and you've been piloting some partnerships with some community, de- community development organizations, ECN being one of them. Talk, talk to us about what that looks like and how many people are you going to be able to help? Mm, that's a fantastic question. That to the latter half of that, that depends on who else wants to help me with this work. Yeah. Um, but right now, the goal is to touch at least, at least minimum, a thousand households across the city uh, with the $20 million uh, program launch. I look at this as a, 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 a sort of a, a foundational lay of mm-hmm. uh, uh, investment mm-hmm. that will attract additional funding, whether it's federal, whether it's philan- uh, philanthropy, whether it's, you know, even the city to add on to this but um, when we launched the Detroit Tax Relief Fund in 2021 which paid back the taxes of uh, Detroiters who were uh, at risk of tax foreclosure we also deployed a survey asking them like what is like what's necessary what do you need next right and so when you think about housing stability 
I can help you stay in your home, but what's the point if you're one home repair away from walking away from the house? And so home repair rose to the top as like the number one next thing needed. And so it yep. was it was urgent. It was urgent. It should have been it was urgent that it got out the door as fast as it got out of the door. And so we partnered with uh, Prometica, um, DTE, Enterprise Community Partners, and um, Rocket Community Fund, and we uh, put together a program that basically allows uh, gap funding to be used with the DTEEA program. So DTE has their energy measures that they put into homes, but if someone needs a furnace or a hot water tank, uh, but there's a hole in the roof, that investment can't be made. Sure. And so this program allows that roof to be put on the home, but at the same time, if that leak caused significant damage to the ceilings in the attic and the drywall, we can replace that too. Paint it and everything. That way now you can get insulation. So basically it's a program that allows resources to be leveraged on top of themselves so that you can create this sort of capital stack of whole home repair. Um, the, U, the, the U of M uh, study you're referring to, the 8,500 uh, households yeah. across the city, we got 120,000 phone calls the very first day we launched this program. It, and you can only help 1,000 people so far. <laughs> and you got 120,000 calls. The yeah. need is great. And so, you know, while all of, like, not every single call was uh, a unique call, it showed the urgency of this, this the program need. And so we are working with uh, a lot of the DTEEA partners. So um, I won't name them all, but of course you mentioned ECN, you have Wayne Metro, UCHC, um, Matrix Human Services, uh, EcoWorks, mm -hmm. and I'm missing one or two other organizations. Mm -hmm. But the point is like, people are all in. They're like, this is what we've needed. And we didn't do, from the phila uh, philanthropic standpoint, we didn't onesie two we like you do this home repair, we'll <laughs> give you a thousand dollars for staffing. It's like, no, like let's give you actual staffing capacity because mm. from a from a uh, philanthropic lens, actually back up from a community um, uh, uh, a grassroots nonprofit level, um, when I was at ECN, I could see how we were trying to make money stretch because we didn't have enough capacity <laughs> dollars, to, like, operating dollars, we had program dollars. Yeah. And so we wanted to make sure that as we're working with these partners, we're actually giving them the, the capacity to deploy these programs and engage the residents in a way that uh, is in, in meaningful and, and certain, right? Because if you are getting onesie twosie dollars here and there, you can't really hire anybody. No one's going to take that role. No one's going to be invested long term. So we wanted to make sure like that was a possibility. Mm. All right. So, so one of the things that's really frustrating to watch happen right now is the growth of value in real estate in lots of places in Detroit. And then to think of all the people, black people mostly in Detroit, who have lost their houses in the last five, 10 years, right? So these are people who, if they were in those houses, they would be benefiting from this growth, right? That is how, that's how we build wealth that's right. in America. And it's all happening so fast now, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, every six months, uh, the numbers look really different than they did before. So I guess my question is, how, how, do, we, how do we make sure that we can actually bridge that gap. The gap is actually getting wider, it feels like, right? The attainability 
uh, for black families in neighborhoods is is dissipating really quickly as prices just skyrocket and as the banks are still a little too much on the sidelines in terms of 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 lending so i I feel like that's that's like a crisis like an urgent kind of crisis because it's happening now it's happening fast but i don't know what you do about it what those families a lot of them are still here now they're renters right um they didn't leave they just don't own so how do we deal them in to this this great surge which uh you know i mean those of us who are middle class homeowners in the in the city we're experiencing it we're getting it they are not that's right and Rent is getting more expensive. And rent's sure getting more is. expensive. Let me right? tell you, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm renting. Yeah, yeah. it's not a fun. They're going to lose those homes because they can't stay in them. That's right. right? I mean, right. what do we do? Man, I have had so many conversations with so many people in the power. I mean, in the positions of power to start thinking more strategically about that, especially on the rental side. But um, from a home ownership side, I remember hearing. Uh, the neighborhood just adjacent to Morningside, right at Alter and Chalm, Alter, between Alter and Chalmers, East Warren to Chandler Park. Um, someone was like, "Oh man, home values are 106,000 in my neighborhood. 106,000 dollars. <laughs> that's not a good sign. I mean, that's a great sign right. for like you know growing equity, but it just to your point, that that gap just got bigger. It's, it's right? widening. And so my We need to just, so I, I did an interview with Rocker Community Fund. It was like five questions with uh, Director Darnell from the Gilbert Family Foundation. One of the things that I said is, we have to start writing these sub $100,000 mortgages. Just have to, right? So because what's happening, there are some beautiful neighborhoods in mm-hmm. Detroit that are not at the 100000 200000 fully like street walled in place. Every house is occupied, beautiful parks in, in, in play. But they can't get a mortgage. And so what you're seeing is a home that is actually in good shape uh, that would be great for affordable home ownership and mm-hmm. have some air quotes up because it's like, it, well, not, it shouldn't even be air quotes. It's just true. Uh, that same person who's paying $1,000 a month could buy a home for $40,000. Right, and pay less. And pay the less. <laughs> and use wouldn't that, be there. Right, and use that money to buy a car, afford the insurance they need to, to find a different job. You know, like it just the imperative is on the bank system, too. I mean, you know, and, and the assessors, because, you know, I, I'm also inclined to believe that uh, there are certain parts in the city of Detroit that you're naming that is at or beneath that one hundred thousand dollar level that are being devalued by assessors in a in a in a systematic way. And it's like, you know, are or who just are, denied by the banks who yeah. won't write mortgages yeah. at all in those in those areas. Yeah, because right. they do an appraisal and the appraisal says right. it's not yeah. worth. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they say that. But, you know, I, I again, I think. There needs to be a shift to and, and there are some banks that are out here doing it already I'll say that I'll preface it by saying that there needs to be more more of us out there doing this work um, but what's happening is those $40,000 affordable home like homes for a prospective homeowner are being bought up by investors who are renting those homes out for the thousand dollars eleven hundred dollars and then what you're doing is you're disrupting the 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 social fabric of a community because if that is a transient family, if they are stretching to make that thousand dollar payment and get displaced, now there's a new family in there and it's just like this revolving issue that 
starts to potentially hurt the community long term. Yeah. And so I would just love to see more community, more more institutions begin writing. You know, there's been a lot of press about this too in the last year. Yeah. More institutions writing the sub 100,000 uh, mortgages. Yeah. Here, here's a crazy idea. We're talking about reparations right now. We love the Stephen's city crazy <laughs> ideas. We love I, I'm a guest on this show. <laughs> <laughs> say, say whatever I want. No. <laughs> We have all these. We have all these people who lost homes, right? Lost homes to tax foreclosure or, or outright foreclosure, whatever. We're talking about reparations in the city for the first time. What what if we handed all of those families who lost their homes fifty thousand dollars to buy a home in Detroit and had a bank say, "We will finance those mortgages uh, with the with your fifty thousand dollars." Imagine, imagine how much of that gap that we're just all talking about we would make up in a in a relatively short period of time. I don't disagree. I think uh, this so, is what probably also why they don't let me like run nonprofits <laughs> and give away money. <laughs> no, 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 for sure. But you know, he made it sound so easy. <laughs> but it can be. It can be. You know, one one thing that someone once said to me that stuck with me, someone that we all know, um, a very prominent figure in the city of Detroit, mm-hmm. um, you know, and anyway, this person said, if humans made it, humans can fix it. If humans, yeah, humans created it, humans can fix it. Hmm. And so I really think that if we created something that is broken, we should be able to fix it. So it can be that simple, but the reparations task force that uh, has been created that Creo will uh, oversee. Civil I d- Rights and Inclusion in Office. Office. Mm-hmm. Yes, sorry. Civil Rights Inclusion <laughs> Opportunity uh, Office, which I was, I'm a former Human Rights Commissioner right. for District 4. Uh, I hope to see some of that birthed out of that, that uh, task force because you're exactly right. Like People will be benefiting today mm-hmm. if they still have their homes. Um, and the city is working on different initiatives. Like I would, I would love to see like a down payment assistance program. And if you are uh, a victim of this overtaxation, then maybe you qualify for right. up to X number of dollars that you can add to a down payment for a home. And so it fills that gap, right? All right, we got a little bit under a minute left. I want to ask you about uh, the eviction fund announcement that was yes. just announced. Talk about that and how many people can you help? How much money is in the fund? How much are you trying to raise? How many people will benefit? So we are, we have put in uh, $12 million. We funded three different organizations uh, to help provide counsel to tenants who are, being, uh, who are at risk of eviction. Um, we would love to have more more funders come to the table. The city, to co- the city has already put six mi- committed six million dollars to this fund. Mm-hmm. We're putting another million on top of that to go towards the evaluation to make to, for the to see the efficacy of this work. Yeah, um, but it will help at least six thousand residents a year, uh, maybe more. Mm-hmm. But the goal is to continue providing equitable opportunities where you have landlords that have representation eighty three percent of the time when uh, it's time to go to court versus four percent of the tenants. Who are people supposed to call Darnell Adams? How they, <laughs> who they call for this help? So there are three organizations that uh, residents can call. They can call uh, Michigan Legal, Michigan Lakeshore Legal Aid. Okay. They can call um, United Community. Yeah, UCHC, and they can also Coalition. call um, 
Michigan Legal Aid. Okay. All right. Darnell <laughs> Adams, <laughs> Director of Detroit Community Initiatives at the Gilbert Family Foundation. Thank you for coming on Authentically Detroit. It took you long enough. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Good <laughs> <laughs> to see you, man. Appreciate thanks, it. Darnell. Likewise. Bye. All right. All right, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. Joining us is the Director of Planning and Development for the City of Detroit, Antoine Bryant, and the President CEO of Detroit List, Camille Walker-Banks. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, gentlemen. Yes, we are excited to have you back, Antoine. Last time, uh, it was it was you and I, and we, you know, it was a one-on-one. It was it was pretty hot. How you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling just fine. You back in enough, the hot seat? I've had enough time to heal. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I was nice, right? <laughs> no, it was fine. Camille Walker-Banks, oh. this is your first time on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> How's it going? It's going well. So you are creeping up on what? How many months at uh, LISC now? Almost seven months. Almost seven months. So not even a year. Talk to us about what your strategy is for uh, investment uh, in Detroit neighborhoods from LISC. I know that you've been there a while. You haven't really Mm -hmm. talked to media as you were trying to get the lay of the land. But I know you're looking at economic development and housing, all sorts of things. Talk to us about what you're doing. So um, I'm so glad to be here, and, and thank you for having me, mm-hmm. and thank you for caring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what we've been doing is, uh, for many years, investing in um, housing, uh, preserving housing, creating housing. I mean, we're in a crisis right now. Affordable housing is really where we need to, to focus our energy, and LISC has been focused in that area for many years. Um, the, ter- the team currently at LISC, you know, they, they know this. We have the 0% home program. We have the, um, our construction and working with real estate program. We have lending available for small businesses and for um, housing projects. Oper- no, we don't want to call them projects. Housing <laughs> development. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now, so we have that under wraps. We know how to do that. Um, we have a Detroit Housing for the Future Fund, $65 million. We're investing in, um, you know, BIPOC-led opportunities, so giving everybody a chance to get in this, this game. I mean, because, as I mentioned, we're in crisis mode, so we, ne- we need all hands on deck. But evolving the economic development strategy, mm-hmm. um, we have these centers for family, uh, working family sites all across the, c- the city. And they're, I mean, we see 4,500 people a year at those centers. Um, but at the end of the day, we're trying to build wealth in Detroit. I mean, everybody wants some, right? You know, so let's give everyone an opportunity to get, to gain some wealth. I mean, we, there was a, I'm not even going to go up into the housing crisis and how criminal that was. But we got we to gotta come up from that. Um, but I am evolving our strategy to include some mobility work, um, as well as digital equity, um, those barriers that are that Detroiters are facing that are keeping them from being competitive. Mm. We want to eliminate those barriers. Mm-hmm. Now, when I think of uh, the neighborhood that I was born in, uh, near Livernois and Grand River, and the people who live there, one of the really confounding problems we have is. People are renting in substandard properties that other people own. Um, they would like to stay in the neighborhood, but there aren't good houses for them to buy necessarily in our neighborhood, right? The houses that they're renting are in bad shape because uh, the people who own them uh, don't take care of them. Mm-hmm. But they would buy and they would like to stay. And there's got to be opportunity to do that uh, with with that population. I feel like that's the population 
that we are most at risk of, of losing in some way in Detroit. I, I wonder what your organization thinks about how we solve those problems, right? Uh, turning renters into owners, uh, but doing it in places where the inventory that's available to buy maybe isn't uh, where mm-hmm. it should be. Yeah. Well, so List Nationally has a lot of effort, or puts a lot of resources and effort towards home ownership and home ownership education. And, and quite honestly, in Detroit, we got to bust down that system that is mm. keeping people from acquiring those properties. We have to figure out how to, um, to change that trajectory. How do we take those packages of housing that are being sold 50 to 100, 200 properties at a time being sold out overseas Mm -hmm. to overseas investors. Mm -hmm. How do we find and identify individuals in our community who can, who may need some support because, again, I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a longtime Detroiter and I've seen what has happened in our community Mm -hmm. and why it's happened and I've experienced it as well. So how do we reverse that? I mean, that's the first piece. But um, how do we support people? And I was speaking with someone here on the island about how do we help someone or identify a group or an individual who may need some philanthropic support, who may need a little bit more uh, resources, but how do we keep that property, those packages of property here locally? Because at least people would have a chance to acquire them. I mean, this whole notion of, so that's one thing. Mm And so I'm looking for that solution, actively looking for a solution for that. But then this, this notion of now we're, we're talking about community land trusts again and giving people an opportunity to own the homes that are on these properties and putting these covenants in it so that people are able to keep them. But that's old. But how do we innovate that so that Detroiters are able to participate? Yeah. So that's, those are things that I'm working on. I'm seven months in, so give me a break. But ask me in We in may give months. you a break. We may. Or uh, give me a solution. Because <laughs> I'm open to it. Well, it's interesting that you brought up community land trust. Uh, Antoine, I know that the city commissioned a study uh, or at a community land, community land trust. Uh, do you guys have an update? I mean, what, what, what did the city learn about community land trust? And is that something that the planning department um, is looking at as a potential solution in neighborhoods? So we're still evaluating it. I think that's it's something that we will pursue in some capacity. I think it's going to come down to uh, what geographic parameters we use for that, right? Uh, the CLT has been employed uh, nationally in a variety of settings, right? So oftentimes it can be neighborhood-centric. Um, oftentimes it could even be smaller than that, so a several uh, block area. Mm-hmm. And so right now it's less about will we uh, pursue it and more about in what capacity and in what form. Um, I think Community Land Trust has shown to be a phenomenal asset uh, and a means for some level of um, affordability protection in the community. Uh, but there are some realities that I think um, residents do need to be made aware of about because um, it can put some level of a cap on wealth building. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's something that needs to be mm-hmm. talked about more. Mm-hmm. Um, as a minor aside, I, I think uh, Camille's being very modest. She's been running a mile a minute mm-hmm. since she's been here seven months. I've seen her laces. Uh, <laughs> and she, she has her sneakers laced up well mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. doing a phenomenal job. And I want you know uh, your listeners to know I've worked with Lisk in a number of cities, and I'm incredibly excited about the work that Lisk is doing here in Detroit as well. So uh, w- there's a broader question there, I think, which is, 
the connection between property management uh, on an individual basis, right, and land management, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. is a community concern, and uh, how badly we've managed the connection between those two things from a planning perspective in Detroit for a really long time, that, that we haven't thought as much uh, about property management and how it connects to land management. So that's a great question. I think that was a question. That's, yeah, a, that's yeah, a great I'm question. I'm, just, I'm a guest <laughs> here. I'm just <laughs> talking. So saw some things out there. Uh, but it's a phenomenal point, yeah. right? But uh, what I, one thing I try to remind people, uh, we're in 2022. Six years ago, the planning department had seven staff. Mm-hmm. I remember. I was right? here. Um, seven. <laughs> you know, seven, right? I have... Uh, for 139 square miles. For 139 square miles. I have 40 FTEs right now, and I have seven open positions, right? I'm adding people, and I need to probably add two or three more. Um, shouts to the city council. Sure appreciate you. We're going to talk about that, too. One thing that we have to do when we look at land management is that we have a significant amount of vacant land. I talked earlier about we are employing and looking at a vacant land strategy. Part of that strategy will be... Um, the maintenance of that land, right? And so it's a collaborative effort between ourselves and the general services department. Um, We need to increase not only revenue, but strategies uh, to be able to manage that appropriately. And it's, it's ironically a relatively new problem right because we've um the the Duggan administration has done a phenomenal job of demolition and so we have cleared a lot of the the blight that existed both residential and commercial but now we have to now do something with that mm-hmm. and so we're in the very beginning stages of really defining what that management will be but you're absolutely 100 percent correct um there is a shared effort that will need to happen between uh, the public sector and our private individuals mm-hmm. Talk about some of the synergies that you all see uh, between the city of Detroit and LISC. I know in the SNF neighborhoods, what's central in those planning studies is a commercial corridor reinvestment strategy. Camille, you talked about providing arm ramps for economic development in neighborhoods. Uh, what do what you guys, how are you guys working together and how is the partnership or budding or crystallizing? What can we expect? I'll take a stab. I'll take a stab. I'll take a quick stab. There's a number of different ways that um, our uh, goals uh, align pretty strongly, right? Uh, You heard Camille talk eloquently about the provision and protection of housing, both single family and affordable. Um, She has avenues and opportunities to uh, affect those households directly where we can provide uh, kind of the overarching uh, focus on that, right? And being able to say, you know, we need to add it in these particular areas. We need to have this uh, quantity um, and address it. And we're actively engaging with our residents, right? And then we can do work synergistically well, for Camille and her team about the actual implementation of that. Yeah. Then from an economic development standpoint, you know, we're looking to, quote unquote, bring more businesses to our corridors or support uh, existing businesses. And, you know, her team's working directly with those businesses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those are just two very um, concrete examples of our partnership. Uh, and there are a number of ways, you know, Camille, you can maybe talk more about those specifically mm-hmm. um, or even some others that, you know, I don't want to sit up here. They hear me all the time. So we want to hear from Camille. <laughs> but you're right. There, There's the, the housing program that we mm-hmm. are partnering on, and it's a $65 million housing project, so or housing program. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually adding mobility, having mm-hmm. added mobility to mm-hmm. my economic development strategy. Um, already connected with Tim Slesser, Slesser mm-hmm. the chief mobility mm-hmm. um, officer, and discuss, discussing how we're going to partner and incorporate 
the mobility aspects, um, more shared, shared. What do, there's a there's a term that they call it. Other options for transportation, getting people where they need to go. Yeah. Um, but doing so collectively, and perhaps incorporating some of that into our projects, our, our housing opportunities. So, we're always looking for. We we keep. I mean, constant contact with the city of Detroit yeah. and Lisk. We're, mm-hmm. you know, we're funding together. We're lending together. We're, we're um, investing in co- commercial corridors together. We have a number of framework plans that we've developed um, in Corktown, in New C- uh, North End, in other parts of the G7, Grashen Seven Mile area. Mm-hmm. And so there's always opportunities to connect, and we're very connected. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Sweet. And we'll continue that. You'll yeah. see more mobility as well. Yeah. So Sweet. it's expanding. Love it. Antoine, the last time you were here, we talked a little bit about uh, the, 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 the imperative of the city having an updated master plan. I mean, mm-hmm. we talked about what that would cost and, and the budget amendment that the city council sent to Mayor Duggan, they allotted $2 million for mm-hmm. a new master plan. So that's exciting news for a lot of folks because that means that a lot of Detroiters, almost every Detroiter should be touched by this. Um, how How is the planning department uh, thinking about uh, what implementation looks like and, you know, when, when are y'all getting started? <laughs> I know that Orlando and, and many of our listeners are excited about the master plan. <laughs> uh, the master plan is something that is a first of all, it's a very comprehensive effort that, and it's at its best, will uh, touch every corner of the city. And so that we're talking a an extensive uh, engagement effort, uh, and typically. A master plan for a city of our size is a 18 to 24 month exercise. Mm-hmm. So it's a lengthy deal, right? Um, additionally, one of the things that we're, we're doing as a department uh, is uh, not only beginning to define what that engagement process should be, uh, but also doing um, an education uh, not only internally but externally. So we're uh, beginning to schedule with our each city council member individually about what the master plan is, right? Um, also, but what it isn't. Let me be very clear, right? You know, we're not going to finish the master plan and the city changes in 24 months, right? So we want people to understand that. Uh, I've been meeting with um, planning directors across the country to learn about um, uh, their best lessons about how their master plan process has been going. Uh, so we can make sure that this is not only effective, but also inclusive uh, of residents mm-hmm. across the city. And that's something that, as you well know, and I've shared numerous times, that we want to make sure we hit that, that, that button. And then lastly, uh, I need a couple more people, right? I shared with the, uh, with the council uh, as well as publicly that um, I will need a couple of people on my staff, ideally three, that will work full time. They wake up and go to sleep thinking master plan in addition uh, to the participation of most of my staff. And so we're at the very beginning stages of defining what those roles will be. Um, we're looking at probably uh, beginning at some point next year uh, because, like I said, there's a tremendous ramp up that needs to happen for a master plan. But it's going to be one of the most exciting efforts the city has seen in, in a decade. Mm. And, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna. I was just thinking. I can't wait to see what this master plan yeah. is going to. I mean, because can, going back to our partnership, yeah. I mean, what's stated in that master plan? Oh, I'm gonna call you. Drive you some of be, what you're doing here locally. So be sure to. I'm not driving a car. I'm driving a bus. Come yeah. on, you gonna be in the bus? I got you. I'm gonna be in the front. But you see that uh, that tension there between okay, we need to move now. Yeah. And we need to make decisions now, but we need to take this time to go through this massive process of including everybody 
coming up with a master plan, it's one of the things that, that you know, I mean, it is, we've, we've dealt with this tension all for a very long time. Steven, industry. that's a fair comment. And I tell people all the time, um, I can appreciate, uh, you know, wanting to move immediately. Um, but I learned, I learned uh, and when I say learned, it's something, this is not what I heard, it's what I know. Mm. Um, you do better when you're able to have a plan in place and pardon the pun. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something where we have to be very intentional with our moves so that we don't make the mistakes, uh, we don't make the, the unforced errors, if you will, in the process. And so I'd much rather take the time to be very strategic uh, with the implementation as opposed to rushing headlong into something that we all agree could be very good. Uh, without the infrastructure in place. Mm. Talk, mm. talk a little bit about uh, some of the framework plans. I know that there is a bid out right now on the east side surrounding uh, the Stellantis plant. What is that supposed to look like and how are the rest of the framework plans going? So the rest of the framework plans are going, uh, they're at the very beginning stages, right? So um, we're going to begin a planning study for the north end. Uh, shortly. Ooh, that's going to be fun over there. It's <laughs> going to be an exciting, <laughs> an exciting effort. Uh, I, wish, I wish our listeners could see Antoine smile. It's going to be an exciting effort. Uh, we are uh, releasing an RFP for one for Brightmore, right? So we're excited to actually, you know, reach a part of our, our city where they're feeling unseen and unheard. So yeah. we're really excited about that. And then we're also going to roll out one for Midwest Tireman. Uh, and one for uh, Warren, Greater, Connor Creek, yeah. right? So uh, as you can tell, we're going to be across the city uh, and in areas that people don't quote unquote normally associate with as the, the, you know, the shining examples of Detroit. And, mm-hmm. you know, as we said earlier, we're going to be intentional uh, to reach, uh, you know, Joe and, and, and Mrs. Detroit, right? We're going mm-hmm. to touch everybody. And those are communities that need to be heard from, um, and they're going to play a critical element in those planning efforts. And mm. so all of those are coming out this year. And what are those? What are the framework imperatives? I mean, are there certain metrics and uh, buckets that you guys have to meet? Yeah, there's certain buckets that we pull from, but we tailor them towards the desires of those communities, okay. right? So, you know, easy. Uh, North End's far different than Brightmore. Yeah. In a variety of capacities. Yes, for right? sure. So, you know, typically in, in a framework, neighborhood framework study, we're looking at what do you want to see from uh, infrastructure development? What do you want to see along your commercial corridors? What are your needs from a residential standpoint, either preservation or uh, the creation of new housing? Um, do you have open space or park needs? Uh, uh, do you have mobility challenges? Um, are there safety concerns? You know, what can we do from an economic development standpoint? We cover all of those criteria uh, amongst perhaps many others that the residents may bring up, and then we begin to tier them not only from a prioritization, uh, but also from a, uh, a time scale. Like this, this is kind of a short-term kind of a solution. These are longer-term. These are the fiscal realities of those, and then be able to uh, you know come with a a, a framework. Uh, that can be a roadmap for implementation of actual strategies. And, you know, we've had some real success. Obviously, everyone's familiar with the work that has resulted from uh, the Livernoy study. But, you know, we've seen things in Kirchival. We've seen things on Van Dyke. We've got them on uh, Joe Campo in Banklandtown, uh, Jefferson Chalmers. And so we're all over the city with um, some solutions. And we're looking to have some equitable solutions in these areas as well. So, uh, Camille, we're up on Mackinac Island for the policy conference. This is where government, business, philanthropy all gathers to talk about how we can meet challenges differently. Mm -hmm. 
I wonder if you could talk about what organizations like yours need that you're not getting from each of those sectors, government, business, which I would, in your case, talk about banks, um, and then philanthropy. Well, so what are we not getting? That is a great <laughs> question. <laughs> I was going to say, you might, you might have <laughs> too long away. <laughs> oh, where do I even start? But um, right now is a uni- unique time in our history and uh, to do some things very differently, to be innovative. Um, everyone is, is looking for the next new thing, mm-hmm. but we still have people who are in need of just basic, basic living homes, housing. All right. So there's not enough housing. We've been talking about that and how do we grapple with that? So that's that's one piece. Um, this digital, you know, the digital equity piece. Digital The access, fact that, yeah. you know, 50 to 70 percent of the households of Detroit don't have the right adequate um, Wi-Fi mm-hmm. or systems mm-hmm. in order to even compete. And that's, I'm adding that to the strategy because that is a key component of building wealth. If you're not able to access housing or, or the application to apply for housing or application to, mm-hmm. to, for school or to, to get into schooling, um, we can't compete. Um, so what can we do better or what more we, do we need? I mean, I'm looking for more neighborhood developers mm-hmm. because I would love for the city, for individuals to really feel empowered. Okay. I love that. To make, you hear a, that, make a difference. Lisk is looking and for yes, neighborhood looking for developers. Neighborhood developers. <laughs> we have some resources. We have information. Mm-hmm. And we have money. We want to help people who live in the community be able to be a part of the change that they want to see in their community. So there's always more of that that could be had. Yeah. Um, Those developers need access to capital. Low cost capital. Don't Absolutely. Have right Absolutely. Now. Low and cost. we're developing some new resources that are, are addressing those those needs. Yeah. Um, so I would I would love for people to really you know don't don't hold on to how the old normal was. And as we create our new normal, let's just think differently and let's just make take some chances. So that's what I would love to express to the corporate philanthropy to, you know, just just take some chances. Mm. Um, no, that's a great. Know, that's, that's a great I don't know list. what more I can say. <laughs> come on with your you know, with those ideas. <laughs> and now is right the there. time. Yeah to implement some things, to do things differently, mm. create our own new normal. Oh, I love that. Create our own new normal. That's a nice button on the conversation. Camille Walker-Bakes, executive director of Detroit Lisk and Antoine Bryant, director of the Detroit Planning and Development Department. Thank y'all so much Such for coming on the podcast. All right. All right. My Thank pleasure. <laughs> All right, joining us on Authentically Detroit is the president and CEO of Forgotten Harvest, Kirk Mace. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. How you doing, Kirk? I'm good, man. Yeah. I'm good. It's a beautiful day. Yeah. You like being here on the island? Uh, you know, it's a great experience being able to network and see people and, and, you know, in particular right now to reconnect with people. We've all been apart from each other for so long. So this gives you a chance to actually get connected and spend a little time catching up with folks. So for that, you know, for me, that's great. You know, you're not supposed to actually, you know, fundraise and stuff like that over here. So, <laughs> you know, it's not supposed to work like that. You know, it's, it's more like policy level conversations and stuff like that. So, um, you know, the experience varies for me but based on the theme, mm-hmm. you know. And, well, and the being theme a, this year is civility. Yeah, but it's also election year. 
So yeah. underneath all of that, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, figuring out that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's great just seeing people. So we had last time you were on the podcast, we had a conversation about uh, elections in the 13th and 12th district. Uh, but I, I love that you brought up the theme and the theme for this year's policy conference is civility. How how does how does that sit with you um, in 2022? What does that word what you mean to, to you? Do? What you trying I'm to do? I'm just asking right the now, question, right Kurt. You trying to really get me to talk right we now? We got a solid 15 minutes, so let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, look. It does raise questions mm -hmm. like who, who, who I, maybe I don't understand what the point of this civility conversation is. It seems like it's been a theme that's come up quite often now over the last four or five years. Um, what is the what is the advancement that we're trying to look for here and who are we trying to actually be? Who are you talking about? Like when you say civility. What are you, who who are you asking to be civil? Yeah, because I feel like everybody here is like advanced level professionals <laughs> that we're like getting washed over the same conversation. We absolutely yeah. know how to be civil here. Yeah. Um, so is that like the conversation that you want to take to a greater community of people who are still disgruntled about where things are? And if that's the case, it comes off a little bit as like a victory thing. Mm -hmm. Like uh, we won already, so just calm down. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're gonna move this thing forward, that uh, you at least need to act right. And you know, depending on how you take it, and if you're not patient with being a patient listener with the whole conversation, it could be jarring. And it's just definitely some places to enter in to like resist against what this might sound like. But you know, I'm learning in my old age to try to be patient with these conversations, but it's an old conversation. We need to get to the head of it. Oh, patience, patience. So yeah. let, let me ask you this. I, you know, you are in the business of solving for food insecurity um, in Southeast Michigan, right? Like yeah. our residents who are struggling with hunger, mm -hmm. civil about it. Do, are, are we asking them to be civil about it? Or are we asking them to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, you, you're getting down to the most basic um, you know, aspects of human nature, our carnality, you know, when somebody from our community or any community say, I got to do what I got to do. I mean, that basically boils down to like, you know, you can't ever blame me for my survival instinct. Mm -hmm. Right. And when you get when somebody gets down to the level of survival, the last thing that they are carrying with them is civility. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it is like I said, it it is a, a conversation that kind of kind of is relevant with those who have won yeah you know what i mean yeah. so it's telling yeah it is. you know so that that's that's the thing i would say about it um where it it becomes actionable mm -hmm. in in my life in our lives i can't say that you know it does anything to disrupt my reality of what i got to deal with every day mm -hmm. so that's where the patient comes in you know right. i'm here to just hear the conversation and see what's up and i'm not you know if i was asked like you asking me <laughs> if there's places to push back on it this is this is my point of view i think there are places to push back on it and 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 to your point you know the the struggles people are going through right now are very real yeah and if they're looking to leadership to provide them with the solutions or the pathways to to take care of themselves or find their own power 
um, it seems like that might be a premature conversation. Mm. Some monumental news out of Forgotten Harvest. You guys just opened up a new facility. Tell us about it, Kirk. How's it going? So we, we are working to transform Forgotten Harvest operational model. And we want to do that so that the food that we get from so many different places throughout Southeast Michigan can be properly mixed so that people who are receiving um, things from Forgotten Harvest get a, 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 a equitable kind of distribution or mix of everything that we get on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So by bringing everything back to our new facility, giving us the space and the ability to like, you know, separate all the loads, categorize them based on the nutritional kind of values and then build them back up with the data that we're collecting from the community to be able to make sure that, you know, at any place that we deliver, we have data that tells us how many people could typically be there, but we're also building loads that each family that comes through the line are going to get, you know, um, going to be able to take home food that looks a lot more like what everybody took took home during COVID. Yeah. You know, where we made sure that there was every food group represented and there was enough for the kids and everything. So we don't ever want to go back to the Forgotten Harvest where, you know, it's all fresh, it's all great, but it's only tomatoes, onions, and cabbage. And next time, you know, come back for more. We're really trying to make sure that we reposition ourselves with our supply chain so that we can actually mix all that stuff to give people you know, we we create more value what we already have. Yeah. You know, so it's um you know big part of that process is complete. We got our new place. Now we need to just you know oh, eight mile. Yep. Yeah. Get the get the process in place and and from now on there'll be a new product coming out to everybody everywhere that gets forgotten harvest. Yeah. Talk about talk about the need. Like I'm in the grocery store lately and I'm looking at the price it's of high. chicken. And yeah. I'm looking at the price of milk and I'm like, okay, do I? Okay, what else I got to do before I decide to buy this milk and, you know, buy this chicken? Inflation right now is through the roof. Are you seeing an uptick in the need, and what does that look like? Absolutely, in a very, very um, visceral way. Like, people are, like, saying, yeah, food is is costing a lot. And honestly, would you be be surprised, people are actually getting hit with the gas prices. Yeah, that too. As far as just in the pocket, right? And, you know. I think I, I personally think that the psychology that you take to the grocery store or whatever is is something that has so much flexibility in it, right? So you go to your grocery store and your regular product that you get is not there. You know, you quickly got to reach position of whether or not you get something else. Today you ain't got enough of that box. Maybe I get a smaller box. Yeah. You know, that milk is like okay. Maybe I get the half gallon. I'll come back next week and get another half gallon. I'll figure it out along the way. And in the store, on the, on the point, you can make adjustments. I got $20. I might not come out with what I expected to come out with, but I'm going to figure out how to make this $20 work so I can move forward. Mm-hmm. I think if you give people choices and you give people the ability to kind of make those dynamic choices, you know, they got the ability to figure it out. Gas prices, you know, what you going to do? You know, you can only adjust, like, your mobility, and there's a certain baseline of mobility need, people need in order to survive. Right. And then you take all the other factors into it. So I think just the pressures that are going that are coming to people's lives right now, it's almost like a perfect storm. And we're not even in it deep as, as, as it can be yet, where gas prices are going up marked in a marked way. Food prices are going up in, in ways that we haven't seen in like 40 years in some instances. Um, and it's only getting worse. And it's connected to our entire global kind of situation, yeah. which means it's not like this is temporary. You know, this is like something that probably won't 
have a real solution to it for a number of quarters in front of us. Mm. You know, so it's something that we got to pay attention to and we got to realize that people can't just make adjustments so easily. So, yeah, there's a lot more people who are saying, ah, I'm going to need help. Yeah. And, yeah. We're, and we're on the island where people can actually, you know, do something about it. So tell me how you're sort of translating the needs of the people that you serve every day into the conversations that you're having up here. It is an election year. Yeah. Folks are going to be headed to the booths uh, in the primaries in August and the general election in November. What, what, do, what do those conversations consist of? Well, you know, I was just getting it. I just got a chance to hear the press conference for the earned income tax credit mm-hmm. that they're, you know, proposing. And they're saying they're going from a 6% distribution to like 30% if I understand correctly, which is a big boost for working families. It is something that will help people when they file their taxes to actually have a bigger tax return and then be able to manage that money properly to be able to actually have more of an actual bottom line that they can work with. Mm -hmm. I think things like that are definitely going to be able to help people. I also think that there needs to be a renewal of the conversation around what needs are for different people in different communities with mm. different family sizes, mm-hmm. right? So there's a, a tool that we were able to invest in at the Food Bank Council of Michigan. We uh, reached out to the University of Washington uh, Women's Center for Health uh, Welfare and their School of Social Work. And um, we were able to actually get a self-sufficiency standard study done for the state of Michigan, which essentially um, breaks down um, the, the sustainability wage for a working family based on the county that you live in and based on your family size. That granular. That granular. Yeah. Now we can say if you live in Wayne County and you have a, you're, you're a single parent with three kids one at elementary, one in grade school, one in high school, you need to make this amount per hour in order to actually be sustainable without having to stand in the food line and without having to get any other subsidies. You might not eat dessert every night and you might not have any money to save. (laughs) But when you talk about somebody to be able to completely be on their own, there's a standard that actually there's a formula that is actually available that many, many states now have actually gone through. The Food Bank Council of Michigan here commissioned it for the state of Michigan. It's been renewed one time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a second version that's out. I think things like this earned income tra- tax credit thing is going to call for us to actually do a, a redo and renewal of that formula for us. So I'll be talking about things like that with people up here. Great. Like from a policy perspective, how are we thinking about what the poverty rate means for people in Ann Arbor? Wayne County and the UP mm-hmm. and is and, and is there a one solution for everyone past a certain income level because that's what you talk about a family at an income level this kind of stuff but what kinds of families do we have dominating our state and our regions and then what kind of inc- wages are being paid on average in those places yeah and then like from there let's have a real conversation on how we're going to end poverty yeah, I mean, you know, putting a demand on government to be more dynamic and how they come up with solutions is not always a one size fits all. That's right. So that level of granularity is is encouraging, Kurt. Well, the devil's in the details, bro. <laughs> <laughs> we fighting the devil. Yeah. So, yeah. so what? First off, you're one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, likewise, you, you already know that. And so, I always like to ask you whenever I get the opportunities, like, okay, what are you thinking about for whatever is next for you? I, I love this question for you because it's it's always different and it's always dynamic depending on where you are. Yeah, Kirk Mays in 2022 at the Mackinac Policy Conference. It is uh, June, right? Yeah. Uh, what are you thinking about? 
you know, I'm I'm in a space of reflection right now, mm-hmm. you know, deeply. You know, I, one of the aspects of coming back and being connected with people, especially people from our community in the work, you know, I don't know if people realize we've been lot, like very isolated from each other over these last few years. So coming back to people and like saying, hey, I haven't got a chance to see you, but congratulations on all your accomplishments. Yeah. Great job on your new job. Yeah. Great job on your, the, 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 the new baby and all the stuff that we get a chance to actually hug each other over. You know what I mean? Um, you know, Facebook, Facebook likes aren't the same thing. <laughs> so, Legit. you know, coming up here and getting the love directly from my folk that I grew up with in the work has definitely been able to like put me in this space of like additional reflection on all the accomplishments and all the things I've been able to serve through in our community over the which last, is needed. I yeah. mean, like, do you do you take time to add weight to all that you've been able to accomplish and like just sit in it? Not enough. Not enough. Not enough. Not enough at all because it's always something else to do, and you know, I, you know, I just don't get into it that much. But I'm I've been the only child forever, so I reflect on stuff every day, but more as a continuous improvement for myself, and not in a gratitude and like you know thankful space. I say right now I'm in a gratitude and thankful space. Sweet. I've been thinking about why I started this stuff like years and years and years ago. Like the first day I got up and was like, this is what I'm about to do with my life. I better go tell my mama and <laughs> she wasn't with it. And I was like, well, damn, I'm still about to do this, you know? And, and what was like, what made me push through all of that and go against the grain of everything I guess I was raised to do is the stuff I've been thinking about. And honestly, man, I just gotta say, it's like, it's like a deep love for people and it's yeah. a deep love for our people. And I still feel in some ways I haven't been able to accomplish the things that I wanted to do when I started. Which is crazy to me because well, you've accomplished so much. But I get you. I, yeah. Yeah. It's, it was a bit of naivete because I thought I was going to be able to, like, you know, bring the whole culture together. And by now we should be having conversations about, like, when we go into Africa. We yeah. Out. You know, yeah. we have built up we have built up <laughs> economies here and we, you know, we got our stuff together. I thought we'd at least be down the road, you know. <laughs> To, to you know something more advanced than maybe like where the Black Lives Matter conversation is. So there was a deep like sense of like I want to build up my community not as a comp- as a competitive piece, but more of a like we still got a lot of value to add to this society, mm-hmm. and we're getting more so taken advantage of and manipulated than actually standing on our own to actually give mm-hmm. our true gift to this world. Mm-hmm. And because of that imbalance, the whole world is actually waiting for us to waiting. get our stuff together. And I'm not like the, hey, let me tell you something. Fix this thing because it's unfair for us. I'm more like, yo, give me the thing. Let me go fix it. Mm. And it's a lot. It's a lot to fix. And after all these years, I'm just like, man, what more can I even do? And and there's a is there still a value I have for this community and my community? So I've been in this like reflection, gratitude, like, you know, it's not like nobody beating down my door and saying, hey, come do this next. I'm kind of a known commodity now. So. Man, I've been thinking about like Africa mm. and like building economies there and entrepreneurship and all kinds of stuff. So I don't know yet, but whenever it is, I probably need your help. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know? Kirk Mays is thinking and that should be good news to anybody who is yeah. listening. Yeah. Man, I, I so appreciate, I appreciate your willingness that. to come on the show, man. Thank you so much, Kirk Mays. There are two people that I really, really love to hear talk about the giftings in black folks and to talk about the city of Detroit as a whole. That's Candace Fortman. Yeah. And as you. Yeah. Y'all, yeah. I mean, you, the way that you all talk about Detroit as 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 a place that is living as a place 
place that has heart that's and right. soul and, and black folk. I mean, it is. That's right. Yeah, Detroit, yeah, is, like Detroit is special because of the people. Yeah. That's, the, that's only it. That's the only thing. Everything else is a container for us. Yeah. You know? Ooh. Kirk Mays, President and CEO of Forgotten Harvest. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, brother. All right. All right. And we are back on Authentically Detroit. And joining us is Councilwoman Letitia Johnson, representing District 4. She is also the former executive director of Mecca over on the East Side and a former LEAP Sustainability Fellow at the East Side Community Network. Letitia, you've been around for a long time. Letitia, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. Thank you so much. Always happy to be with you. I appreciate you bringing me back. Always. Yeah, we will. As long as you would come on, we would love to have you. So uh, we're here on Mackinac Island. This is your first time off the, on the island, right? First time. All right. Give me your uh, feedback. How, oh. how is it? How are you feeling about it? I feel fantastic about it. Yeah. It Beautiful scenery. Yeah. The weather is gorgeous. I've had some phenomenal conversations with folks. Yeah. Hearing mm. great things. Um, so many people, you know. In this new space, in this new role, um, I realize how many people actually keep track of us and oh, what yeah. we're doing. Oh, yeah. So I've had so many people. <laughs> I mean, the Tuesday, I was standing on the porch, and I don't think I moved for about 45 minutes because I just had people coming up to me left and right to introduce themselves. So uh, that, that was pretty neat. That's, yeah. you know, quite unique, but really, really surprised by the conversations. Yeah, yeah. So there are a litany of things that I want to have you comment on. I, I, I think for me, what's top of mind right now is the mayor's conversation here on uh, the island yesterday with uh, Chief White. And it was a conversation about public safety um, in the city of Detroit and uh, Chief White employing data, employing, uh, you know, certain forms of technology, mm-hmm. shot spotter, um, the, the green light program to, you know, help identify, you know, you know, criminal activity. Um, in neighborhoods. And so I, I, w- I want to get your reaction on two things. Um, num- number one, how are you feeling about the state of public safety um, in uh, the city of Detroit? And then number two, uh, just what did you think of the mayor's uh, conversation with Chief White yesterday and the mayor choosing public safety at, as you know the main Detroit representative mm-hmm. here at a statewide conference mm-hmm. as the focal point for mm-hmm. his conversation mm-hmm. about Detroit? Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, in the city of Detroit, crime fluctuates. As the weather starts to warm up, we see more of it. Um, we're real, realistic about that. Uh, and, and we know we have to address those things, the situations that occur. I think it's important for us to continue doing the work that we've been doing to work on preventing crime. And that's what I, I really like about Chief White. Um, you know, he's focusing on mental health, the co-response program, uh, really connecting with young people, making sure that we reach them at a younger age to keep them out of that criminal element. Uh, and so we're aware of that. So we've been doing some things. We supported the contract to acquire 10 uh, mobile metal detector units yeah. so that when we have large events, we are able to keep the public safe, right? So we're thinking about all of those things. I don't think it is 
the face that we want to put on the city of Detroit, especially with all of the development that we have happening, with all of the programs, all of the positive things that we have going on. Um, I do know that Skills for Life was talked about, uh, touched upon briefly. I think that is a phenomenal program where we are helping to train residents and connecting them with employment once they've been uh, trained in various areas. Um, you know, we, we're looking at how do we address affordable housing? How do we look at the Detroit Land Bank's inventory to create affordable housing units while also uh, bringing in developers for mixed income And none housing. of that was touched on. It wasn't. No. It wasn't. And, and I think that was a missed opportunity. Yeah. But I'm, I'm also realistic about um, how the media can be utilized to help encourage folks to do different things. And, and you know what, I will say this, I think um, even the newer council members are aware of how that works. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's just interesting to me. I, you know, I think, number one, you know, to come here, um, we are acting in proxy for folks who cannot be here mm -hmm. because it's really cost prohibitive, you know, to be here. And so, uh, it, it is it is an island of privilege. It is an island right. of the corporate and political elite, if we're being upfront and honest mm -hmm. about it. Um, and so, you know, to get up and talk about, uh, you know, black and brown people in the city of Detroit doing bad things on this stage just felt a little odd to mm -hmm. me. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree with you, you know, on the miss opportunity front. You and I served for a long time on the fifth precinct community relations yes. council. So you've been doing this work a long time, a long time, yeah. a long time and recognize the opportunities that we have in front of us. Um, and so, you know, like I said, I think chief white, he comes up with some great ideas. Um, I know that, you know, we focus a lot on data. And when we talk about ShotSpotter, because it is in one of my precincts that I mm -hmm. share with District 3, we don't quite have the data yet. Mm -hmm. The technology has been introduced, but let's give it some time so yeah. that we can see that it's effective before saying let's put $7 million into it. Yeah. We have up until 2024 to utilize ARPA funding. Yeah. Technically 2026 to use it, mm -hmm. but to um, identify programming and, and identify where it's going by the end of 2024. So we have some time to recognize whether or not ShotSpotter is an effective tool. And talk about the efficacy of, 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 of that tool before Absolutely. we continue to invest millions and millions of to dollars expand it, right. in, in this tool. And so, you know, and, and you know, the mayor was talking about... Uh, I think Stephen Henderson, our executive editor at Bridge Detroit, uh, was asked the mayor about, you know, residents' feelings around feeling surveilled with technology like ShotSpotter, the green light program, and even these new, you know, large uh, portable, you know, metal detectors. Where do you stand on, you know, you know, uh, comments that are on the public record at council meetings around folks, you know, pushing back mm -hmm. on this this sort of technology? Mm -hmm. I, I did hear the response about about surveilling people in the public. And I think, you know, there's a fine line. There is, we get that some of it needs to be done for you to be able to identify and track um, folks that are committing crimes, but at some point you have to stop it, right? You have to say that we're pushing too much. There is, there is something that is slated to come before us that is additional technology um, that will can essentially monitor a person from one traffic light to the next and just follow them. Mm. Wow. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it becomes extreme. Yeah. It becomes extreme. And you feel like 
you are especially in Detroit. Caged in, you got a like whole you bunch can't of people get away. driving, riding dirty because insurance uh, is cost prohibitive. I mean, Absurd. you know, what does that mean, right? Even with the de-insurance, mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about as our listeners get to know you more uh, by the decisions you make at the council table, the votes that you cast, and the comments that you make. I want to talk to you about you know your philosophy, how you view the philosophy and the separation of powers between the executive branch and the legislative branch in the city of Detroit. For you, what is the role of city council and how do you see that legislative branch interacting with uh, the executive branch in the mayor's office? So one of our primary roles, of course, is to set the budget for the city. Um, Of course, we do that in collaboration with the administration. Uh, Budget season was very interesting. I, quite honestly, was a little deflated uh, after budget season because historically previous councils would amend the mayor's proposed budget by 2%. We have six new council members and we amended it by 1.05% considering we had a $130 million surplus. Mm -hmm. And Unfortunately, I think we were all so new to the process Mm -hmm. that when it was stated, if you move this, it'll be detrimental to this department. Mm -hmm. But I think it was a lesson learned. Yeah, it it was certainly a lesson learned. And um, so moving forward, I think we will look at making sure that our priorities are funded just as well and making sure that um, we identify initiatives that we both can support, that city council and the administration can support, um, but elevating our priorities yeah. within all of this. And I'm seeing something, you know, on, at the council table that I haven't seen in years, and that is r- really this tension that I think council is supposed to have with the mayor's office around ordinances and initiatives that uh, the council wants to pass or things that the mayor wants to get through, you know, the, the back and forth around the, the decision for who would be corporation council, mm-hmm. uh, the right to council ordinance mm-hmm. um, and the back and forth, you know, around that. And that is a win for a lot of the progressive circles. Mm-hmm. How, how, how do you see that? I, I think it's phenomenal. Yeah. And and just know that there's so much more to come. <laughs> there is so much more to come. I mean, we're we're having some great conversations um, because I think and, and not to say that previous councils didn't weren't connected to community. But I think yeah. we are so deeply connected to community that we can identify some of the challenges yeah. that we've seen. It reminds me of the councils that, you know, I experienced growing past. up. Like, Absolutely. I'm like, oh, you know. I was like, Mary Ann Mahaffey would be cussing somebody out by now. It's like, what is going on, you know, like with this council? So you mentioned budget season a little earlier, and I want to talk to you about uh, the amend the amended budget that you all sent to Mayor Duggan that he signed mm-hmm. that allotted $2 million for a master planning um, uh, effort here in the city of Detroit. Uh, not too long before that was passed, uh, I interviewed the uh, director of planning, Antoine Bryan, and mm-hmm. asked him, number one, exactly how much it would cost, and he gave that figure around $2 million, but also uh, the political will for uh, a master plan. And, you know, he sort of just stated that it, it's really a budgetary and staffing issue. And so council was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we heard you. Yeah. So, so talk about the need for a codified master plan in the city of Detroit. Gosh. So just thinking about district four yeah. and the communities that I serve, when I look at we appreciate the planning studies that have been done thus far. The framework far. studies, yeah. But when you look at even District 4, it's, there were three. There are three that have been completed. That's 
considerably less than 50% of District 4. There are, there's one that is slated to happen this year, and then hopefully another one in the upcoming fiscal year. Um, but when you look at it citywide, it is roughly between 40 and 50% of the city that has gone through the process to identify how to move these communities forward. What does that say to the remaining 50 to 60% of the city that has not been touched? Yeah. So maybe a week and a half ago, I serve on the Planning and Economic Development Committee. We actually had DTE come before us and want to install a new substation across the street from the old Kettering High School, which is the yeah. Dakota plant. Yeah. And so that's near and dear to my heart because I'm a pioneer. I graduated from Kettering. And Deep east side. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so what, when I asked the question whether or not the substation was primarily to make sure that the Dakota plant had adequate power to function, and the answer was no, it said to me, what's the plan? What's the greater plan for this desolate area that is predominantly vacant land that we unfortunately don't know anything about. Mm. If we had a master plan update, we would have some idea of mm. where development was moving in that particular neighborhood. Mm. And that would be the, overall, the case throughout the entire city. Yeah. So this a master plan essentially is supposed to touch every, every resident. Every neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, there has been, I'm switching gears, there's been a proposal uh, being floated around, float, floated around and I'm, it's, you know, I talked to Fred Dorhall uh, earlier uh, this morning about it, about, you know, a split rate uh, tax uh, um, proposal. Uh, how, how are you thinking about something like that? So actually, um, member Santiago Romero and I, have joint force forces and created the Equitable Development Task Force. Mm -hmm. We have three goals. One is to bring in a split rate tax. Can you tell our listeners what that means? So essentially, so I just came from a, a phenomenal session um, a short while ago, and Invest Detroit is doing a tremendous amount of research around a split rate tax uh, and how beneficial it'll be for Detroiters. Our task force will do the research and look at how it affects Detroit residents. Essentially, it'll help to reduce property taxes for homeowners. Um, and it was indicated that it would be roughly 18%, an 18% reduction. Because I think so many people recognize that Detroit property taxes are some of the highest in the country. And the way it, it, that and the way that we are asking people to pay property taxes in the city of Detroit, uh, you know, summer taxes and winter mm -hmm. taxes, and you get this one big, mm -hmm. huge, people don't pay bills like that. They don't pay large lump sums That's of true. premiums. That's true. But let, <laughs> let me say this, in all fairness, you can now pay them monthly. Okay. You right. can go through the DivDad kiosk. People knew that. A lot of people probably don't know no, that. So unfortunately, give, give give us the resource. How do how do we pay that? So roughly? you you can actually do it via the city's website. Okay. If you go on to DetroitMI.gov and you click on Pay, I think it's Pay Your Bill or Pay, and then you can click on your taxes. You enter your 
address or your personal ID number, and you can make monthly payments. You can also like do it. Like a premium. Yes. Love it. Love it. You can also do it through the DivDad system um, where they have these kiosks like in, in Rite Aid and, and other stores throughout the community. You can go and make your monthly payment there. Wow. Wow. So so the, the proposal that uh, you heard would reduce, uh, you know, uh, residential property taxes uh, by a significant amount, but it'll keep the the property tax rate on land the same or raise it. Correct. So okay. it it splits the two. Okay. Um, and the the whole I don't know if I want to say the the, the goal and the vision is to um, because I was just talking to a state legislator is to make it so that. Um, while we have the difference where land and property are taxed separately, mm-hmm. um, where we can adjust the, pro- the tax on the land, mm-hmm. um, ultimately is guiding the way to supporting community land trusts, where okay. nonprofit entities um, will have the ability of being exempt from that land tax. Mm, got it. So that's a that's a secret that okay. now everybody breaking knows. news, <laughs> breaking news, breaking news. But we are moving in that direction. So nice. the Equitable Development Task Force are three goals. And who sits on that two. task force? So it's member Santiago Romero and I who uh-huh. are leading it. We have a number of people that have reached out to us with some interest in being involved in it. Mm-hmm. And so we will kick it off um, this month in June. Uh, we're reaching out to those individuals now to ask them to be part of the core group. Nice. And then we will start to invite um, others to join the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but our three goals for mm-hmm. this year are uh, doing the research and, and really identifying how split rate tax impacts Detroiters, mm-hmm. com- a community land trust, mm-hmm. um, as well as looking at amending the community benefits ordinance. Oh, wow. OK, OK. <laughs> Is that breaking news, too? E- equitable <laughs> development. That's what we're focused on. Well, well, you know, it's, it, I was interviewing uh, Antoine Bryant uh, a little bit earlier about uh, uh, community land trust and, you know, the city. Uh, commission a study on it and I asked for an update on that and so they're also looking at it so are there are you guys exploring synergies with the planning and development department around what that can look like in the city of Detroit? So I've had preliminary conversations with the administration and um, the the reply I've gotten back um, was essentially that there are other ways to get to affordable housing mm-hmm. uh, and so that to me means that it's not so palatable mm-hmm. um, for the administration but we're looking to kind of push the envelope and um, just recognize how it can be Um, and recognizing that we are supportive of mixed income uh, development as long as we can be intentional about affordable affordability yeah Mm -hmm. so uh, we got we got about five minutes left I want to talk to you about sustaining uh, the the right to counsel uh, fund, right? You know, there is a lot of back and forth with the law department about the legality of uh, diverting general fund dollars to that, right? You guys will have to sort of figure out how to keep that sustainable. Uh, ideas, um, asks out, you know, like how how is this going to be sustained in the long run? Because people need it. We, we certainly know that people need it, and we're appreciative of the $12 million investment from, um, I never know what to call them, Rock. The Gilbert Financial. Family Fund. There, there you go. There you go. <laughs> the, the Gilbert Family Fund. 
Um, we have allotted $6 million for the first three years. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, I think it it will be telling to see the first full year, how much is actually utilized for the program. Um, and we can come up with some ideas on, on creating funds in, in different ways that helps to fund mm -hmm. this uh, right to counsel. So my team and I, we've been having some conversation around what that looks like where funding can come from, um, and I don't want to share at this point, but we are having those conversations just to make sure that we continually have dollars to be able to support right to counsel. Yeah, you know, you know I got to ask, Letitia, you know, I got to ask the questions. Absolutely. <laughs> and so I want to ask you about uh, tracking expenditures for ARPA, right? Um, a small percentage of the money has been spent. We know a lot of it has been allocated. Are we going to meet the deadline? We will. Okay. Absolutely, we will. All right. Um, and, and I'm channeling Donna Givis-Davison with this question. Uh, she's been asking everybody about, you know, the theme of the conference being around civility. How does that sit with you? How does civility um, sit with you? And what, how do you interpret that? So, so um, when, I, when I first hear it, it makes me think of where we are on a national level mm -hmm. and um, everything that's going on uh, in politics. I think it's important. I think I think it's important to have dialogue. I think it's important to be respectful. Um, but also, I always think it's important for us to be authentic. Mm -hmm. To to be authentic with um, authentically Detroit. Exactly. Make sure we know who we are, and we're sharing who we are yeah. um, with everyone. But I, I, above all, believe that we can be respectful in doing that. Councilwoman Letitia Johnson, representing District 4, thank you for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure.